Well, hello and welcome to episode number 465 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I'm Carlos and in this week's packed show. Uh, Qantas has some issues with its A380s after they come out of mothballs and Nev takes a look at his not so favourite airline. And also in the military news this week, as he scrolls down to his show notes because his thing is stuck, it's all about uh, the, uh, here we go, there we go, so coming up now, it's all about the coalition of 11 nations uh, with the F-16 fighter jets. And we also take a look at private aerial refuelling uh, with the Air Force. So joining me across the fields, the dales, the glens, the rivers, the the ponds of the UK in his stately mansion in Buckinghamshire is, of course, Neville Bounds. Yes, here we are. A bit rushed tonight, but uh, we made it, thank goodness. Um, yes, bit of a hectic day today for me. Um, up at uh, silly o'clock again and uh, drove to Stockport, very near to Manchester Airport this morning, first thing. Uh, and then uh, over to Staffordshire and then back home. So it's a very, uh, very hectic day for the driving. I must say some of the standards of the driving on the roads did leave a bit to be desired today, <laughs> being a Friday. So if people would like to sort themselves out and get themselves a driving license, that would be uh, uh, much appreciated. You now you see, Nev, why I, I've finished my <clears throat> job that I've done with driving. I don't do driving anymore. No. Not surprised. Well, I don't blame you. No, um, but it's um, no, I think it's um, it's a, a hazard of the of life, isn't it? Unfortunately. Yes, That's it so. is. Well, good go. to have you on, Nev, as always, and uh, joining us from down in a very, very beautiful part of the UK. He's someone who's uh, spent uh, the last kind of couple of days putting all the show notes together for tonight's show. It's uh, the newest member of the team. It is Nick Hodling. Hello, Nick. Good evening, Carlos. Nice to be back again. And uh, yeah, missed you guys last week. So uh, I'm very excited this week because I've got a new microphone and it's it's a bit special. So uh, yeah, I've been having a bit of a bit of a geek out with my uh, lovely new bit of hardware. So uh, yeah. Yeah, thanks to our Patreons, I should should add for uh, helping us keep the show going and uh, operating with uh, nice high quality. So thank you everybody for supporting the show. How's uh, how's things with the uh, motorbike, Nick? Because you are a big fan of motorcycles. Yeah, good. I've been um, so this week. I've got I've got a couple of bikes, and I, so I've had my little. I've got a little classic uh, Italian bike that I use. So yeah, I've been using that to commute to work this week. While the weather's been quite nice, but uh, I think it might be getting put away back in the garage next week because I think as it's the start of the school holidays, it's obviously forecast to rain as of tomorrow. Oh yeah. I forgot about that. Yes, yeah, so our British summertime that's yeah. in full swing. Absolutely. Literally, the weather is swinging. How's, uh, how's it down your way, Nev? Because we, we've had a, a dry day today, but it's been it's been cloudy pretty much most of the day. Actually, well, here it's okay, but as I was driving up to the northwest, it threw it down with rain. Uh, I don't think even the third speed on the wipers was sufficient. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was um, very, very wet and, and nasty. But, um, yeah, we've got a weekend full of it, I think, unfortunately. So I did go out and uh, um, cut the grass earlier. Yes, yeah, uh, so I've done that today, Nev. <laughs> because the option for doing that this weekend is probably nil, I, I would say. So we'll have to see. 
So we've got lots to get through on the show tonight, including some news. Don't panic for those of you who are worried where Matt Smith is. He is here, but uh, he's busy uh, putting everything together for the show tonight on the uh, on the supercomputer. So he's busy doing that. Just uh, say hello, Matt, for the benefit of the, the listeners who are worried where you are. No one's worried where I am. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> He is there. I'll be He's with you as soon as I can. I've literally only just a second got in the door, so I'm frantically sort of loading as much as I can. Yes. So uh, I-, I will join you as soon as I've eaten my tea, and because uh, I'm not going to eat on air, I'm afraid. Sorry, there are oh. there are some rules. <laughs> oh, well, a, a th- plain, plain safety podcast uh, used to do oh. that, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I will never be doing that. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Right, so let's get on with some commercial news. All the team ready? Yep. Let's go. Yep. So first up this week in the commercial news for the show, it's all from simpleflying.com and uh, newly reactivated Qantas A380s have had two technical issues on two flights. So just days after returning to service from long-term storage, a Qantas A380 has encountered a series of problems with one one of the aircraft requiring a diversion and an overweight landing. Now, I remember seeing this actually this week on Twitter. Uh, the issues concerned two consecutive flights. The first was during the 13th iteration of QF1, while the second took place during the July the 14th iteration of QF2. The A380, Victor Hotel, Oscar, Quebec, India, departed Singapore for London Heathrow on the 13th as QF1. And as reported by Av Herald, the aircraft encountered problems as it was cruising at flight level 400 around 60 miles uh, east of uh, southeast of Frankfurt. The crew initiated a descent to flight level 280 due to the failure of the autopilot system. It was noted that this meant the non-compliance with the RVSM, or Reduced Vertical Separation Minimum Criteria. The issue was not urgent enough to require a diversion, and the A380 continued to London and performed a safe landing around 80 minutes later. Conducting its turnaround, departing London a mere 20 minutes behind schedule, the same Airbus, A380, then encountered another issue. Flying at flight level 330 as QF2 to Singapore Changi, the air jet was flying over Central Europe when the technical problems were encountered whilst flying over Slovak-Hungarian border. The crew made the decision to turn around and return to London, climbing to flight level 340. And according to passengers speaking with the Aviation Herald, they were informed that the aircraft's navigation system was not working correctly. Obviously forgot his tom-tom. Uh, The Aviation Herald also notes the crew were subsequently advised that a heavyweight landing would be required, that the maximum reverse thrust would be engaged, and additionally the aircraft would require the full length of the runway and would exit at the very last turnoff. Nearly four hours after the first departing London aircraft uh, performed a safe landing back at the same airport on runway 27 left. Notably, The pair of incidents came just days after Victor Hotel, Oscar, Quebec, India returned to passenger service. 
13-year-old aircraft had been in long-term storage at Victorville in California from September 2020 to 2023 in January this year. After leaving Victorville, the jet would spend a month in Los Angeles. As part of the reactivation process, the aircraft was flown from LA to Abu Dhabi via London, where it underwent maintenance for several months in its official post-pandemic passenger flight uh, took place on the 10th of July as flight QF1 from Sydney to London via Singapore. As of March 2023, the airframe itself has accumulated 44,000 flight hours across 3,823 cycles. And chaviation.com also reports that the aircraft's estimated market value, because we all want to know this, is uh, a little bit over... $39 million if you want to buy one of those. But um, it um, doesn't surprise me, Nev, after being in storage for this amount of time, especially in um, in, in the uh, place in you know, Victorville where it was stored, that things would obviously um, may need a bit of uh, sorting out. But it's surprising yeah, yeah, that yeah, these well, weren't picked up on on the initial shakedown. No, the trouble is, though, when you do these sort of test flights or, or return to flight things, um you know, it can all work fine for the first couple of flights and then something happens later on. Um, and presumably they're not doing these return to flights the, the full length of the real journeys, I would imagine. Although I, I don't actually know that, but um, I was assuming that they'd probably do it, you know, a few hours, not 13 or 14 hours. Um, and yeah, if you don't use it, things start going wrong very often or, or need fixing so um yeah a bit unfortunate but well first at least they're back in the air that's why i look at it because yeah. i was a bit concerned at one point that uh, they may not return that'll be another 380 operator that's not uh, not gonna be operating it but um yes um but um no i think that the um it, it's i think that aircraft suits qantas quite well bearing in mind the kind of routes that it was designed to do and you know, uh, bearing in mind the, the sort of flight lengths and what have you involved. So, yeah. I'm, Fresh my memory, Nev. Have you have you have you have you been on the three eighty? Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, I have. The only one I went on was uh, earlier this year to DFW, Dallas Fort Worth, uh, with the BA boys and girls, and that oh, was yeah. a very nice experience, I have to say. Very Nick. Pleasing. Well, I, th I think uh, it's the same with any vehicle, isn't it? I, I've always been a, a great believer in the fact that a, a vehicle will remain reliable if you use it regularly. Um, and I think that, you know, possibly that's a little bit of what we're seeing here is that, uh, you know, these aircraft have sat around for a long time and, you know, they're very complex bits of kit. So you're going to get some issues. It's going to take a little while to, to shake those out, I think. Now, Nev, you've got the next story, and uh, this would be a Ryanair story, and it is a Ryanair story, hmm. but um, with a slight twist. Well, yeah, um, people do ask, uh, where does the Ryan come from in Ryanair? Now, I do happen to know the answer to that, but it might be a good time, because we never actually talk about the airline really in the way, in the uh, style of which, you know, where it came from and and all, all the rest of it. We normally talk about Ryanair because there's been some sort of passenger incident or fight or 
<laughs> something weird like that. So it would be actually be a nice change to talk about it in a far more positive light. <laughs> um, so a bit of history about uh, the airline. Um, it's headquarters in Swords in Dublin, and it's got the primary operational bases are at Dublin and Stansted. And it forms the largest part of the Ryanair Holdings family of airlines and has Ryanair UK, Buzz, Louder Europe and Maltair as sister airlines. Uh, it is Ireland's biggest airline and in 2016 became the world's largest airline by scheduled international passengers. And the group itself operates more than 500 aircraft. Uh, it began operations in 1985, flying a 15-seat Embryo Banderante uh, turboprop. Uh, between Waterford and Gatwick. Uh, in 1986, the company added a second route from Dublin to Luton, thus directly competing with the Aer Lingus and British Airways duopoly for the first time. Uh, with two routes and two aircraft, the fledgling airline carried 82,000 passengers in one year. Uh, in 1989, a short Sandringham was operated with Ryanair sponsorship titles, but never flew revenue-generating services for the airline. Uh, that's an interesting point, actually. If anyone knows more about that, that would be interesting to hear about uh, what, the, what the real story was about that. Uh, in 1998, uh, Ryanair placed a massive uh, two billion US dollar order for 45. 737-800 series. Uh, the airline launched its website in 2000 with online bookings initially said to be small and unimportant part of the software supporting the site but increasingly online bookings contributed to the aim of cutting flight prices by selling directly to passengers and excluding the costs imposed by travel agents. Uh, within a year the website was handling three quarters of all bookings. Uh, the company launched a new base of operations in Charleroi Airport in Belgium in 2001 and later that year the airline ordered 155 new 737-800s from Boeing at what was be, uh, to be believed to be a substantial discount. Uh, in 2003 uh, Ryanair acquired its uh, ailing competitor Buzz from KLM. Uh, Ryanair's CEO Michael O'Leary stated in uh, April 2007 that Ryanair planned to launch a new long-haul airline around 2009. The new airline would be separate from Ryanair and operate under a different branding. It would uh, offer both low costs with fares starting at €10 Euro and a business class service, which would be much more expensive, intending to rival airlines such as Virgin Atlantic. The new airline would operate from Ryanair's existing bases in Europe, uh, to approximately six new bases in the US. The new American bases would not be main bases such as uh, New York JFK, but smaller airports located outside major cities. Since the Boeing uh, 787 was sold out of production until at least 2012, and the Airbus A350XWB would not enter service until 2014. This contributed to a delay in the airline's launch. It is said that the name of the new airline would be Ryan Atlantic and it would sell tickets through the Ryanair website under an alliance agreement. Uh, in February 2010, O'Leary said the launch would be delayed until 2014 at the earliest because of the shortage of suitable cheap uh, aircraft. 
Well, obviously, that's that's never happened so far, is it? Um, on uh, January the 27th in 2014, Ryanair moved to a new 20 million euro, 100,000 square feet Dublin head office in the Airside Business Park, having outgrown its previous office within the Dublin airport itself. The building was officially opened on the 3rd of April 2014 by the Minister for Finance and the Lord Mayor of Dublin. In September 2014, Ryanair agreed to purchase up to 200 737 MAX 8s, uh, which was 100 confirmed and 100 options for over $22 billion. Um, however, getting back to where we started with the whole thing, uh, Ryanair was fi founded uh, in 1984 as Dan, Dan Ren Enterprises by Christopher Ryan, Liam, Liam Lonigan, who's the Onish owner of the Irish travel agent Club Travel, and Irish businessman Tony Ryan founder of Guinness Peat Aviation and of course as we know the airline was shortly named Ryanair. Uh, Guinness Peat Aviation GPA was a commercial aircraft sales and leasing company set up in 1975 by Aer Lingus and the GPA uh, and Tony Ryan who was then an, uh, an Aer Lingus executive. Um, so there we have it that's uh, Tony Ryan and um, Christopher Ryan are responsible for the names uh, that they appear on the front of the aircraft, on the side of the aircraft. Didn't know that about the flying boat, Nev. There you go. That short Sandringham. Mm. Yes. I mean, I know, I know they, uh, the, <coughs> I know about the Embraer they had, uh, the little uh, yeah. fifteen seat Embraer. I, yeah. know, I knew about that, but I didn't know about the um, short Sandringham. No, no. Flying boat. But obviously, as you said, it wasn't used for um, revenue generating services. But we still have to do our. Ryanair flights, don't we? You yes, and I. we do. We do now. We've got to have that five thirty <laughs> lager in a in a low cost. No, no business class lounge this time, Nev. Oh God, I can't. I can't bring myself <laughs> to even think about that. But let's let's find a route to do, shall we? And we'll go and do it. We'll go and do it, and yeah. we'll film it. Yeah. yeah. You know what we should do, Nev? Mm -hmm. We should we should pick three or four routes. And then do a do an online vote for the listeners and the listeners oh, pick, pick where we go. Yes. Do like a little voting system where the listeners can I choose. Hope our listeners are kind. Mm, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I'm not sure about this. I'm I'm concerned already. Anyway, yes, you're right. we should do that. We'll do that. We'll do that. Nick, you've got the uh, next story from flight. Oh, sorry, flight radar. I like this. Yeah, flight radar. We need to look on flight radar and see where Armando is. We'll talk about him in a bit. Um, so, gaps in the map where aircraft aren't found on flight radar. So, on Thursday, the 6th of July, Flight Radar 24 tracked the highest number of commercial flights ever, following more than 134,000 flights. 134,000. Flight Radar 24 posted the map below the following day to illustrate the busy skies and received numerous questions about the blank areas on the map. Why are there big holes in places around the world? So the most obvious hole in Flight Radar 24 on the global air traffic map at the moment is Ukraine. So following the downing of the Malaysia Airlines flight in 2014, airlines began avoiding eastern Ukraine. And then, of course, when Russia began their full-scale invasion in February 2022, all of Ukrainian airspace was closed to civil aviation. So the map... Um, 
which I don't know if uh, Matt's going to be able to put up for us, but uh, it shows the entirety of Ukraine empty, but also a large buffer zone implemented by Russian authorities extending from the Ukrainian border. Civil aviation places safety above all else, meaning many of the most convenient international flight routes are avoided due to safety or security concerns. Oftentimes, it's not just a concern about overflying an area, but also what happens if we need to divert here. For quite a few years now, flights have routed around Libya, but recent fighting in Sudan has expanded the area aircraft avoid, extending flight routes from Europe and northern Africa to destinations south of Sudan. There are also areas around the world served by local airlines that are avoided by international carriers. Syria and Afghanistan still see regular commercial service, but those destinations are not served by large international airlines either due to governmental uh, prohibition or the airline's own risk assessments. The other main reason flights avoid a particular area is geography, specifically geography that makes the safe operation of commercial aviation difficult or near impossible. The most prominent example of this when looking at the flight radar map is Tibet. On the map, you can see blue pins that represent airports, while the white and yellow lines represent available airways that aircraft can use to transit an area. And nearly all of Tibet is airway free, um, not because the terrain is too high to fly over. Uh, even the tallest mountains in the world are just to the southwest, uh, and these are easily traversed. However, safety is, again, the prime consideration aircraft operating at normal cruising altitude of 35 to 40,000 feet are flying through air that is less dense and contains less oxygen than air lower in the atmosphere. At cruising altitude, there's only about a minute of useful oxygen available before hypoxia can begin affecting the brain. This is why airplanes are equipped with oxygen masks and why aircraft descend to 10,000 feet or lower in the event of a depressurization. So the problem with Tibet is that much of the plateau is at or above 10,000 feet, mm. making it impossible to descend to a safe altitude. Aircraft that do operate in this area follow special procedures and carry equipment to mitigate an emergency situation. For nearly all others, flying around is the easiest thing to do. In eastern Russia, the lack of flights is a combination of geopolitics and geography. There are few flights to begin with, as there are not many cities in northern and eastern Russia that require large amounts of air service. But with the invasion of Ukraine came sanctions on Russia and prohibitions on aircraft from other countries operating in Russian airspace. This has resulted in even fewer flights over eastern Russia than at the beginning of 2022. Much of the world's air cargo transit anchorage in Alaska, in between Asia and North America, and the fastest route between those two places travels directly through eastern Russia. Prior to the Ukrainian invasion, international airlines would fly from Anchorage to cities like Beijing, Shanghai, Tokyo and Seoul via Russian airspace. But with the imposition of restrictions, all of that traffic no longer uses Russia and instead uh, routes out over the Pacific Ocean. So flight planning is a balance of safety, security and economics. Airlines will fly between two points as efficiently and as safely as they can. On some routes, that might mean 
taking a long detour to ensure the safety of their passengers. Just looking on Flight Radar 24 at the moment, and um, yeah, that picture that um, that we had at the beginning there with the um, the big hole in the map where Ukraine is. I'm just looking on Flight Radar 24 at the moment. There's a a flight that took off from Turkey, Istanbul, and um, it's a triple seven um, freighter, triple seven three hundred freighter. Took off from Istanbul, and rather than travelling across the Black Sea and obviously over Ukraine and straight to to, to Moscow, where its uh, final destination is, it's gone from uh, from Istanbul, Turkey, all the way uh, up to Slovakia towards Poland. And then round the top Lithuania, and then across to um, to uh, Russia. Yeah, it has meant massive, that some, certain airlines detail. have had to have actually had to scrap routes, haven't they? Because it's just become um, economically um, impossible for them to be able to to operate those routes um, in a in a viable manner. Um, and I think we've seen with Finnair that they've started doing a route where they go over the North Pole. Uh, in order to go to Japan, I believe. Somebody might correct mm. me on that. Uh, but yeah, they're one of the few airlines that I think does a does a sort of polar route. Yeah, I went, I went to Tokyo from Copenhagen with uh, SAS quite a few years ago. Now they take the uh, the polar route. Yeah, very much so. And, cool. uh, Makes you, you wonder when all this is Certificate, don't you? Well, they do. In the flight demo, uh, they show you how to put on your polar suit. Wow. <laughs> uh, should the aircraft have to ditch in that region? Because there are obviously hundreds and hundreds of miles with absolutely no habitation whatsoever. Um, so, yeah, they, they even show you how to uh, don your polar suit, should you require it. Looks like a space suit. End up turning into polar bear food, I would imagine. <laughs> well, yeah. Some oh. of us more tasty than others, I should think. <laughs> Depends on what you eat. Uh, <laughs> moving on, Flight Global, next one. And uh, we're going to Nigeria for this one. Uh, Nigerian regulator uh, urges tighter refueling procedures after water contamination incidents. Now, one of the things that I was first taught learning to fly was that you dip your tanks when you do your walk-around checks, on, especially on the Cessna 150 anyway, because you obviously you get the little dip, you put your little tube in, gets you a little bit of fuel out of the tank and it's it is quite interesting to see the big difference when you do have water in the tanks because it is it completely separates from um from the fuel very interesting to see uh the nigerian civil aviation authority states that it's been receiving mandatory occurrence reports from carriers relating to water being found in fuel tanks these include a recent event which a significant amount of water was drained from the fuel tank of a boeing 737 whose full gauges and indicators malfunctioned during a flight it has issued all operators a communication highlighting an urgent need for carriers and aviation fuel suppliers to implement and procedures owing to their being inadequate or not being followed uh, knowledge of the potential risks and hazards associated with aircraft refueling and how to mitigate them is important for any person involved in ground handling, the authorities said. The procedure says it should include a walk around of the fuel vehicle to check overall condition and inspect fuel hoses and gauges. Sample fuel from the vehicle and aircraft should be taken during refueling operations with the presence of water being treated as a primary concern, the communication adds. 
Within 60 days, the regulator instructs uh, the aircraft uh, fueling manuals must be updated accordingly and personnel trained in the required procedures. It's never a good thing to have a plane running on uh, on water, Nev. It's not a very um, combustible no. material. It's, it's suboptimal, isn't it? And um, I'm no expert, but as you said at the start, isn't that Aviation 101? Well, yeah, yeah it, is, it is part of the part of the checks for for GA yeah. anyway. I know that um, obviously with a commercial airliner, it's slightly different. The checks. Well, they, they they do the same. I mean, I don't know how often they they do it, but uh, they they're checking uh, uh, fuel contents for water. Uh, Rich, Richard Adams has made a good point actually in the chat room. He says that essential uh, essential the fuel gauges are hopeless on most GA aircraft. Certainly, the typical club types. Definitely agree with you there, Richard, mm. <laughs> because they are pretty um, rubbish, which is why we used to have a piece of wood on the uh, on the Cessna 150, a small, uh, uh, like a bit like a, a cane, like a, a, a garden cane style piece of wood, which you'd unscrew the top of the tank on the uh, 150, get up on your stepladder and put the stick in, pull the stick out, and you'd obviously have the you know, the mark on the stick where the fuel lever was in the wing tanks because you could you just could not trust the, the gauges on the aircraft itself, which is pretty bad considering because it's one of those important things, having fuel on board an aircraft. I, I think it's helpful. Certainly. It certainly yeah. is, yeah. Nev, you got the next one. And um, KLM don't want you to fly with them anymore. Nev. Well, not quite, but uh, that, that's the, the inference. It's on politico.eu. Uh, uh, it says, Dutch airline KLM would love to fl fly far fewer people on the short hop between Amsterdam Schiphol Airport and Brussels. It's even buying them train tickets. If there are connections, uh, and if the connections are good, if they arrive at Schiphol, they also... They run also in the weekends. Uh, we are more than willing to stop flying to Brussels, says uh, CEO uh, Marian Rintold, uh, told Politico, adding, we are moving customers from plane to train. She is acting because airlines are under increasing pressure to cut their carbon footprint. And first in the firing line are short flights that could be replaced by a much cleaner rail. Uh, KLM faces the additional problem that Schiphol is hitting the maximum capacity for flights and the government is trying to limit the number of takeoffs and landings to reduce noise pollution. Uh, it's scandalous that in a time of climate emergency we still have these extra routes, said uh, Victor Thevenet from Green Group Transport and Environment. These flights between Brussels and Amsterdam have a climate impact that is 14 times higher than the train. Uh, his approach dovetails with that of the European Commission, which is setting an aspirational goal of making sure journeys of uh, less than 500 kilometres are carbon neutral by 2030. Uh, for the KLM boss, who is a former state railway CEO, that means trains instead of planes on the 200-kilometre run between the Dutch and Belgian airports. A flight that takes 55 minutes, but also a comparatively competitive 100 minutes by high-speed train from city centre to city centre. But a big problem in scrapping the four daily flights between Schiphol and Brussels is that the rail alternative isn't up to scratch, with a particular problem being in the early morning and weekend trains. We need to solve a few bottlenecks before we can really implement it, says Rintel, adding she wants that, uh, that to happen the, uh, sooner, the, uh, happen sooner the better. Uh, as part of efforts to fly less 
uh, KLM has bought blocks of seats on the high-speed Thales train. It's not just the, the Dutch carrier, but looking to put fewer bums on seats. But Germany's Lufthansa has long teamed up with the state, state railway Deutsche Bahn to shift passengers from its giant Frankfurt hub onto trains rather than on connecting flights. Uh, KLM's sister airline Air France has done the same with SNCF. France even passed legislation last year banning short-haul domestic flights if there isn't an alternative rail connection of two and a half hours or less. But the law has so many loopholes that only three routes were affected. Uh, whilst Dutch government is uh, committed to boosting passenger rail traffic on routes to Brussels, Paris, London, Dusseldorf, Frankfurt and Berlin, and is even subsidising night train connections, uh, the KLM chief is against short-haul short flight bans like the French one. It's too easy to say let's ban it and not have train in place. trains in place, she says. Uh, then people go by car and that's even worse. Rintel is also looking at uh, the connection to Berlin, which currently takes 6 hours and 40 minutes by train. Track infrastructure upgrades on both sides of the border could eventually cut the train journey to four hours, becoming more competitive with the 75-minute flight. Well, I've got a story about going from... Uh, was it yeah brussels to amsterdam um years ago this is before you booked your ticket online so it's actually before the internet <laughs> and you went to your travel agent and they gave you a proper ticket do you remember that what a proper i remember ticket those days now um and they gave me a ticket from amsterdam to brussels which was tremendous uh flight i assumed it's a flight anyway so it was a very early flight it was a six o'clock flight in the morning from Schiphol to brussels so i got there you know, just as the airport was opening, in fact, because that's when it um, didn't really operate a full 24-hour service. And I got there, and the lady on the ticket desk said, ah, well, that's that's a rail ticket you've given me. So actually, the airline was issuing rail tickets back then via the travel agent. They didn't actually say on the ticket that it was a train ticket. So they had to get all the way to, I think this was before the... Uh, airport station was open properly as well so i had to go back into town on the coach and then get a um a train to brussels um so that did uh, take a bit longer than i had anticipated but certainly that is a short hop um skip old to zavantem airport in brussels it's not not far at all so if they can do it by train then you know that would be a, a better better solution wouldn't it, i think i think we should go there at ryanair now because i've never been there what to skip all haven't you oh yeah. all right then we'll get on one of those um what do they call them um you know the the flights that all those chaps get on when they've had too much to drink oh um, what the um yes uh, the, the 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 stag party flight stag party that's, that's yes. what i was looking for yes <laughs> yes well we jo join them for a fifty-minute flight to Skipple, that'd be nice. Skipple, yeah, yeah. I must, I must admit, mm. I've never been there. It'd be nice to see what the airport was like because never flown through there. So, yeah. And obviously, it's it's one of those airports that um, our local airport, Norwich, flies uh, to often, yeah. um, albeit very expensively. But um, yeah, mm. I have to look into that, Nev. Yep. Uh, Nick got a story on uh, airline making a detour for the passengers experience 
Yeah, this is an interesting one. So this is from simpleflying.com. Um, and it's passengers on board a play airlines flight from New York to Ke Keflavik got the chance of a lifetime to experience a volcanic eruption. And so the play airlines flight took off from New York Stewart International on July the 10th, bound for Keflavik. And the aircraft was an Airbus A321neo. Uh, took off relatively on time, just nine minutes later than scheduled, and the whole flight went by as normal. Uh, when the flight neared the Icelandic capital, the flight the flight's captain decided to give their passengers the experience of a lifetime. Ten minutes before landing, the crew decided to make a quick diversion past Keflavik to a volcano eruption just ten miles away from the airport. In an interview with ABC News, one passenger on board, Matthew, described the spectacular event. Ten minutes before landing, the captain told us in a very happy voice. He took a little detour over the eruption site and just wanted to turn around so everyone could see it both sides. It was just unreal. We could just see a fountain of lava emerging from the earth. It was an amazing experience. Overall, the flight eventually landed 12 minutes earlier than the scheduled time, and the incredible experience was captured by passengers on board, and lava can be seen coming out of the volcano, with a cloud of ash in the sky above. Uh, on Saturday the 15th of July, the same scheduled flight made the exact same detour as the one on the 10th, showcasing the spectacular views many of play airlines flights that come from europe get to experience the eruption coincidentally as the flight path for arriving aircraft uh, coming from europe fly near the site so iceland being geographically located on both the north american tectonic plate and the eurasian tectonic plate is a geologically active island and the country is famously known as the land of fire and ice with its stunning glaciers and breathtaking volcanic eruptions. Although the passengers on board the Play Airlines flight got to have a positive experience of the volcano, many passengers worldwide likely experience the negative effects. When a volcano erupts, a large cloud of volcanic ash is spewed into the atmosphere, and this causes havoc for planes. Aircraft flying cannot fly through volcanic ash as the hot ash contains sediment. And if the sediment gets into the engines, it damages them severely. And there have been many recorded accidents of this happening or incidents, it should be written. Most notably, British Airways Flight 009, operated by a Boeing 747, experienced a quadruple engine failure after flying through volcanic ash near Jakarta in Indonesia in 1982. Uh, although there were no recorded fatalities, um, the danger was immense. Uh, they did, in fact, manage to restart the engines and uh, landed safely. I remember that one. Of, in the yes. spring and summer of 2010, Absolutely. a volcano erupted in Iceland, and it was such a big eruption, the ash cloud spread as far as North America and Europe. As a result of it, the flights throughout Europe were forced to be cancelled. Uh, this was at the height of the summer season, Thousands of flights were affected. Um, so nowadays, aircraft can fly over ash if the density of the ash is between 2 milligrams and 4 milligrams per cubic meter. This is to ensure the safe operation of the aircraft. However, thankfully, the Play Airlines flight this time wasn't affected by an ash cloud. So what do we think? Um, this, this sounds no, thank you. That's all I'm saying. No, <laughs> I'm bit, thank I'm you. I'm a bit cynical and a bit... Um, 
yeah a bit skeptical that an airline would kind of willingly go out of their way to to show passengers a no thank you is my response to that idea what a ridiculous (laughs) i I love the idea of it it sounds spectacular but no 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 no. (coughs) terrible terrible possibly not on a on a uh, (laughs) on a vehicle that's that relies on uh, forward momentum and (laughs) yes and clean air Um, clean air clean air yes that's a very good way of putting it thank you matt nick would you like to pronounce the uh, volcano that erupted in iceland let's have a go shall we let's see if i can find it um um, <laughs> Nev has put a link in the group chat, by the way. Yes, there, there's a very <laughs> helpful explainer on, on the YouTube uh, thing. There, Should we see we? if we can get Google to pronounce it for us? Hmm. I'm going oh, to decline. Be fun. Yeah, but, but but by all means, you go ahead, Nev. Thank you. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> okay. Uh, mm. Well, I'm going to rename it uh, Dave. Dave. Yeah. Right. Dave, yeah. Yeah. I think that's its its European name. Yeah, right. Dave. Okay, Dave. Right. Okay. Yeah. Have we, what is it? What, what is it? I, I'm trying to find it. Is it in the? Is it in the story? Where is it? Well, Sturman in the chat room says it should be called Mount Eruptaboom. Eruptaboom. Yeah. Oh, well, different. I mean, that's. Yeah. That 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 is different. I'll give I'll give him, <laughs> give him Mount Eruptaboom. Uh, Dirk S suggests that we should rename the podcast Plate Tectonics Podcast UK. Right. Okay. I mean, it rolls off the tongue, certainly. Oh, yeah. No, that was um, that particular story. There was made into uh, an air crash investigation episode, the one with the uh, the seven four seven, the BA. Yeah. One. Let me uh, guess. You watched there. it on a plane. I, I probably have done at some point in time, <laughs> and I, I will just just uh, point out that in the last uh, few days, I have started watching the the latest series, series twenty three of Air Crash Investigation. Goodo, <laughs> it's it's very interesting indeed. <laughs> hmm. Yes. Uh, <laughs> right. Next story. Me. This one's from the Insider dot com and American Airlines have uh, barred a 17-year-old from flying with the airline for three years uh, because he tried to use a skip-lagging ticket. A what now? I have no idea. Before, before you carry on with the story, has anybody heard of this? Does anybody know? I, I've heard started? of it. I didn't realise that this is what it was called, though. Right, OK. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it does sound like a US um, definition of it. So it? For, our, for our UK listeners... A dodgy ticket. Oh. Well, not exactly. Oh, okay. Oh, I'll read the story. Read, read the story. Yeah. Okay. Okay. American Airlines has barred a teenager who planned to disembark during his layover in Charlotte, North Carolina, instead of New York City, his final destination. The teenager's father, Hunter Parsons, told Insider the airline barred his son from flying with them for three years because he was planning to use a 150 skip lagging ticket, a practice prohibited by many airlines, including American. His ticket was cancelled and he was banned from American Airlines for three years, but never actually did anything wrong. He never even got his boarding pass, Parsons said in a Facebook message. Skip lagging also known as Hidden City, or throwaway ticketing, is a controversial cost-saving strategy where passengers book tickets with a layover with the idea of skipping the second leg of the flight. While skip-lagging helps passengers save money, often results in lost revenue for airlines. 
Parsons said his 70-year-old son was scheduled to fly from Gainesville, Florida, to New York City with a layover in Charlotte. Gay agents in Florida took his son to a security room to be questioned after seeing his North Carolina's driver license and suspected he wouldn't continue flying to New York City. Parsons first told the local television station uh, Queen City News. Parsons told Insider that his family had to purchase a new direct ticket which cost more than $400 so his teenage son could fly to Charlotte. Uh, he said his son didn't know what, uh, what he was do or doing or didn't realise he was doing anything wrong. Uh, he was left to fend for himself 500 miles from home, uh, but he wasn't taking a play flight, I don't think, though, at the time. And uh, he was uh, never violating any policy and never broke any contract. He simply went to get a counter, uh, went to a counter to get his boarding pass, Parsons said. Uh, in January 2021, American Airlines said it would start cracking down on skip lagging. A representative for the airline previously told Insider a statement that Parsons' son was questioned only at the counter, uh, ticket counter, about their travel while attempting to check in for their flight. Parsons said his family had never abused the hidden city tickets they brought on booking platforms like Skip Lag to save money and added that his son disembarking in Charlotte and not continuing on to New York would have been the first time that someone in his family would have skipped the final leg of their flight. With that said, uh, he's, uh, Parsons said we've always seen every flight through to its final destination. Never once, even now, have we missed a connecting flight, nor did we or were breaking a contract if we were to have done it, Parsons also said. America isn't the only airline that punishes passengers for skip lagging. 2018, United Airlines reportedly charged a passenger who skip lagged 38 times several thousands of dollars. And in the same year, German airline Lufthansa sued a passenger accused of skip lagging on his flight from Oslo to Seattle when he disembarked at his layover in Frankfurt, Germany. American Airlines did not immediately respond to a request for any comment. So there we go. That's what skip lagging is, Nev. So as you, yes. as you might expect, the chat room are all over it, of course. Uh, they know exactly what it is. So Dirk S is saying, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Richard Adams is saying, yes, you can, get a, you can get off at an intermediate point. Yes, you, uh, Dirk S is saying, yes, you book more legs than you actually take. Masha is saying you can actually do it on the trains as well as a way of sort of saving, saving money. Uh, and... Uh, one thing Dirk is asking is like, how can they ban him from skip lagging when he didn't even start his journey? Mm. How did they know that he was going to? I guess it must have just—he was probably too honest, wasn't he? That's the trouble. But uh, I mean, I, I, I presume the advantage is, is that there are—I guess the objection, if you like, by the airlines is the fact that they're offering a discount for the multi-leg. Is that essentially what they're taking a well, um, umbrage yes. to? And also, of course, the potential for selling an extra seat as well, because if you're not taking the seat on that flight, um, they could have sold it. then they have lost some revenue there as well. I'm sure by now the airlines have tightened it up in their ticket terms and conditions, because this used to be quite a um, common practice back in the day, and I'm, I'm sure with the airline prices being what they are these days for tickets, um, that they will crack down this as part of their revenue protection business. Yeah, um, it seems a bit... I, I, I get it, don't get me wrong, but it seems a bit harsh. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, well, unfortunately, uh, the editor's decision is final. True, um, true, true, you true, know, true. You are merely the passenger paying your money. Yeah, yeah, no. You are I'm, just a number. Yeah. 
Certainly, certainly by that stage, anyway. <laughs> mm. Now, Nev, cast your minds back. If you, uh, are you right, dear? Sorry, the wife's just dying in the end oh. of the room. Oh, don't she's alive. Oh, that's not, um, that's not good. <laughs> cast your minds back uh, a while, Nev. Do you remember that southwest incident where the uh, the engine blade separated in front? Ah, yes. The the nacelle. Uh, they've had to do some redesign work, haven't they? On the 737NG series, so it's in the aviationweek.com. Uh, uh, Boeing has completed redesign work and retrofit instructions on the 737NG nacelles to better protect them from broken fan blades, but needs more time to ad address risks linked to human factor issues such as leaving access doors unlatched, the company said. Uh, in a July the 19th regulatory filing, Boeing confirmed that it will meet uh, FAA's July the 31st deadline for submitting design changes and issuing service bulletins relating to the redesign. Uh, the changes are needed to address issues spotlighted in the two fan blade out events, both involving Southwest Airlines 737-700s that led to unexpected aircraft damage caused by pieces of the nacelles breaking free. The NTSB in 2019 recommended that the FAA require redesigns of the uh, 737NG family nacelle that factor in analytical modelling developed since the aircraft was certified in the 1960s and then see that the changes are retrofitted onto the 737NG fleet. Boeing agreed to this and has been working with the FAA for nearly four years. Uh, last August, Boeing asked for another seven years to develop and certify the new design, which it proposed in 20, August 2021. The FAA responded by breaking the programme up, giving the company a year to address agency concerns about the proposed design and development baseline retrofit instructions. Uh, by July the 31st, 2023, Boeing will have submitted all design changes to the FAA and will have released service bulletins to provide inlet modifications, fan cowl mod modifications, fan cowl support beam modifications and exhaust structure modifications for retrofit of these design changes, the company said in its most recent filing. However, Boeing is aware of a limited number of incidents in which operator uh, maintenance errors have led to fan cowls and uh, integrated drive generator doors departing during takeoff or landing. Therefore, Boeing is submitting this request for an additional extension of the previously granted exemption to allow Boeing to work with operators and the FAA to address these undetected maintenance errors and ensure full compliance. Boeing has asked for 17 months to analyse the in-service incidents and develop a risk mitigation strategy. The additional time will allow Boeing adequate time to develop appropriate solutions to address the potential for these maintenance errors and have scheduled discussions with the FAA, the company said. Boeing changes uh, address... That doesn't make any sense. Um, Boeing's changes address risks flagged during investigations of the two accidents plus uh, internal analysis using the company's safety management system. Hmm. Well, um, I actually wonder what they. I would have thought it was done. a safety critical item. I'm, uh, you know, again, <laughs> I'm not an expert in 737 uh, engine uh, operation and maintenance, but um, fan blades escaping the cowling is another aviation 101 item in a jet. Aircraft, isn't it? Mm. That's not supposed to Suboptimal, I think, is the word you're looking for. Certainly. Yeah. 
there is um if you go on to uh go on to youtube there's a video that was done uh, a few years ago where they they got uh, I, I can't remember that there's a cfm 56 or a pratt and whitney i can't remember anyway they they, they had an engine a jet uh, a commercial airliner engine and they put some uh, detonating charges at the base of one of the the stage one blades and then detonated at full speed and it's it was very interesting to see how that engine coped with a blade separation at speed and that actually mm. contained the engine in, in question contained the, the actual blade it didn't um didn't you know come through the uh, well that's been part of the certification process for years you know the the uh to be able to contain a blade out failure within the nacelle and, and the cowling itself um so this is not a new piece of legislation at all is it so um they need to um get their act together there, I would have thought. Tell you what, knowing how big they are, considering I have one sitting up here above my head, they're not mm. small. <laughs> no. <laughs> and they're not light either. These no, and even with lightweight materials, of course, it's, you know, with the, the, the kind of speed that they're rotating at, there's an awful lot of uh, energy um, when they mm. do let go. Um, and even with the, you know, the remarkable materials that are used in the in the in the shroud containment is quite a challenge so uh, yeah i'm not surprised that these types of incidents do occur sometimes to be perfectly honest with you i'll tell you here we need to get on again nev for an update soon talking about engine blades and uh engines oh peter peter mm. yes yes he's very good yeah that's a good idea because I know for those who may, might follow Peter on his social medias, he is incredibly busy at the moment doing engine inspections. So we'll have to have a chat and see if we can get uh, Peter back on the uh, back on the show. Uh, I'm moving on, to hear what, what his take is on on this oh, as well. Actually, that would be yeah. Perhaps we should do uh, another yeah. special with Peter mm. on the show. But uh, Nick, uh, you have got the next story and. Uh, uh, didn't we have a, a story similar to this not so many weeks ago? I'm sure we did. Yeah, this is a bit of a curious one. I was I, the story came out uh, sort of midweek, I think, and um, yeah, so it's about a United Airlines uh, 767 that loses an evacuation slide prior to landing in Chicago. This is from flightglobal.com, and I kind of saw this and I thought, well. Surely that normally is the case that these things are attached to to the doors. So I was a bit puzzled about this. So, um, but yeah, a, a United Airlines flight arriving from Zurich apparently lost an inflatable emergency evacuation slide pack just before landing at Chicago, uh, Chicago O'Hare. Um, on the 17th of July, uh, the carrier confirmed to local media uh, reports that the slide fell out of the landing aircraft Earlier in the day, uh, the Chicago-based airline said, we immediately contacted the FAA and are working with our team to better understand the circumstances around this matter. The 767-300 lost an emergency evacuation slide pack. Um, oh, yeah, already had that. Thank you. That was a nicely written article. They've repeated themselves. Uh, so maintenance workers at Chicago O'Hare discovered an emergency evacuation slide was missing from the aircraft um, that had just landed from Switzerland, the uh, US aviation regulator said. The slide was located in a nearby neighborhood. 
images posted to social media show uniformed police officers gathering up grey material which has been identified as the slide from a sidewalk just east of the airport. It is unclear how the evacuation slide detached from the aircraft as the slides are stored inside the door. Uh, so I did a little bit of digging and found a story on one mile at a time. Um, so how was the discovery made um, that the aircraft lost its emergency slide? It wasn't the pilots. Rather, once the plane had landed, maintenance workers noticed the missing slide. So um, it's basically, um, so it turns out that this is an overwing exit slide. Um, and it actually deploys over the wing. Um, so how is it possible the pilots didn't notice they'd lost one of the emergency slides during the final descent? According to some comments on the Aviation Herald, the 767 uh, overwing escape slides are stored in the main part of the fuselage and not in the doors, as, as you'd find on other exits. As a result, there is no alerting system uh, for the crew associated with this, uh, which would alert the pilots. Uh, there's actually a, a quite a nice video on YouTube actually showing. Um, but yeah, essentially this thing deploys from um, the fuselage uh, just above the wing. Um, and yeah, for whatever reason, uh, it decided to uh, pop itself out and uh, off it went. So yeah, bit of a bit of a strange story. I don't think I've ever heard of anything like this happening before. I love the picture on this story with the... Um... With the the kind of residential street with um, fleet uh, three police cars from the Chicago Police Force and the and the chute lying there at the bottom of someone's driveway. They're all looking so a bit in... puzzled, as though it's a as, as though it's a child's paddling pool or something. Yeah. Well, so... it would it would wouldn't last there very long if it landed out here. I can tell you that now. <laughs> But I mean, the, I mean, I'm I'm trying to get my head around like, so how did like uh, the crew not notice? For for example, and I guess like, I mean, if it was like, say, like the backslide, if you saw, I mean, if it was the back one of the exits at the back of the aircraft, then um, to be fair, I mean, I don't suppose anybody would stand any chance of knowing. It's not like you've got rear view mirrors to keep an eye on, you know, what's going on behind you, have you? You haven't yeah, really so got exactly any that. of that. It seems as though in this instance mm. there is no crew alerting uh, for this slide yeah. actually being deployed. Which or seems, if there was, it was faulty. It seems extraordinary, but yeah, apparently uh, for this particular one that there mm. isn't um, any alert to the crew. Uh, so they were they were completely unaware that it had deployed. Mm. And that video you were just mentioning there, Nick, I've literally just had a quick look at that on um on youtube it's only 17 seconds long it's quite a short video but it's i've never noticed that on the 76 the um the overwing slides deploy from uh a little hatch just um by the trailing edge of the wing <clears throat> near the fuselage it's quite it's quite interesting to see actually mm. but, yeah, i'm not so sure if there are any other aircraft that have that style of slide i don't know if uh, anyone mm. in the chat room knows someone will know <laughs> well i i just think i it would make a nice addition to to the rest of the various pieces of aircraft i have here so 
Indeed. That, very true, very true. Uh, slightly <coughs> off topic, uh, the picture behind me, by the way, uh, very kindly supplied to me by Jonathan Warner, as always. It's a picture that he took at Riyadh. Uh, it was the Danish F-16s waving goodbye on Riyadh departure day. There you go. That's what it is. Hang on, let me go that way. <laughs> he takes oh, some good yes. pictures, doesn't he? Yeah, I see that now. Yeah, mm. yeah. Very nice colours. Indeed. Very nice colours. Um, next story uh, comes to us from Reuters.com. And uh, United Airlines grapples with pilots avoiding the captain's chair. Why, why would you avoid? You want to go from right seat to, to left seat. Uh, United Airlines first officer Phil Anderson has turned down opportunities to be promoted to captain as he doesn't want to, uh, the unpredictable schedule that comes with the bigger paycheck. Anderson is one of many who have passed on the promotion that United and analysts and union officials said a resulting shortage of captains whose function as head pilots could cut the number of flights available to travellers by next summer. One industry, industry official uh, dubbed it as the no-one-wants-to-be-a-junior-captain syndrome. Uh, some smaller regional carriers have already been forced to reduce their flights by as much as 20% due to staffing constraints, said Robert Mann, a former airline executive who now runs a consulting firm. If pilots refuse to take the captain's seat, Mann warned that airlines like United could, could face the same problem even as consumers are returning to more travel. You can't fly with two first officers, he said. You have to be. You have to have a captain. Oh, funny that, isn't it? I, it's, they're both pilots at the end of the day. Uh, finding pilots willing to take career upgrades is not just a United problem. American Airlines. Uh, more than seven thousand pilots have chosen not to take a captain's job, according to union-supplied data. Dennis Tager, a spokesperson for American Pilots Union, said a number of pilots declining promotions has at least doubled in the past seven years. The first officer helps navigate uh, and operate flights, but the captain is the pilot in command of the plane and is responsible for its safety. While both are union jobs, they fall in different categories and have different pay rates. At United, bids for 978 captains' vacancies, or about 50% of the vacancies posted, have gone unfulfilled in the past year. United Pilot Union data shows in June, uh, 96 of 198 openings went unfilled. Currently, the Chicago-based carrier has around 5,900 captains and 7,500 first officers, according to union data. United scheduled to report earnings on Wednesday has sought to encourage pilots to become junior captains with a new pilot deal. That includes provisions such as premium pay, more days off, restrictions on involuntary and some standby assignments, and the agreement must still be finalised and ratified. Garth Thompson, United's pilot head union or union head, said the deal would go a long way towards ensuring United is sufficiently staffed with captains for 2024 and beyond. But some pilots said it was too early to assess its impact, even as they called the proposed changes big improvements. Now, the story does go on. It says here, uh, uh, further on the story, that it says here, top of the scale, hourly rages for a 737 United first officer. Uh, they uh, range from about $231 to $232. Oh, a huge increase there. Uh, compared with around $311 to $312 for the most junior captains of the same aircraft. 
and uh, they did say a failure to substantially improve work rules with, was a major reason why United Pilots overwhelmingly rejected a deal last year. This is strange. Wouldn't, I don't, wouldn't think you'd hear this in the UK, Nev, would you, with, with some of the bigger airlines here, like the BA and um, Virgin. I always assumed that you know, when you would become a pilot and you start off in the right seat as a first officer, your career goal in life would be to, to progress on to being a, a, a captain. Well, not always. I think a lot of people uh, that I've spoken to do quite like being a senior first officer, if, that, if that's the, the level they get to. And they don't necessarily want the uh, ultimate responsibility of the, com the commander, the captain. Um, but I think it, it just depends on, on people's work situation. Also, the distances involved as well, whether they're, how, how they're based, you know, whether they're commuting to work at all or whether they, they've got a base at their home airport, for example. A lot of different factors in here, but um, yeah, it's um, well. I, I think that's that's more and more of a problem now as well. People not not wanting that level of responsibility, perhaps. Mm. Yeah, with the, the rewards that go with it. You know, pay makes a, a big, um, I think, a big thing with that as well, isn't it, Nev? When it comes yep. to pay, because uh, I think we all know, know that the the pilots in the US are paid quite a considerable amount more than what our pilots in the UK here are paid, mm. from, what I've, from what I've heard anyway. But uh, yes, there we go. So next story up on the list, and Nev, we're going all Star Trek. Yes, this is not my specialist area, I have to say. <laughs> um, in fact... Uh, yes, I, I will read it. Yes, it's on cybernews.com. Um, it says Star Trek creator sent into orbit for first deep space burial. Uh, nearly 200 separate remains, including those of the late Star Trek creator and two of the show's cast members, will be part of an inaugural deep space mission to permanently orbit the sun as their final resting place. Uh, Celestis, a company that's been promoting space burial service since 1994, will launch the first of its kind memorial space flight to take place in nearly 30 years. It marks a new twist in space burials for the non-traditional Houston, Texas-based company. It's going to be uh, the first and only repository of our civilian, uh, our civilian out in the universe, 330 million kilometres out into space. Uh, says the president, uh, Colby Youngblood. No one's done that before, he says. Celestis already took part in NASA's successful mission to send the cremated ashes of leg legendary scientist Dr Eugene Shoemaker to the moon and back uh, in 1998 and has completed dozens of round-trip space flights since. Uh, during the Voyager Memorial spaceflight mission, uh, the company plans to send 160 196 capsules of cremated remains of people who have passed away, as well as some DNA of people who are still living. Uh, the flight set to launch sometime in 2024 will carry the ashes or DNA of notable individuals since, uh, uh, such as sci-fi legend and Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry, who passed in 1991 along with his wife. Um, Star Trek cast members also making their final trip, including um, James Doohan, who played the beloved character Scotty, and Nichelle Nicole, known as the USS Enterprise crew member Uhura. Uhura. 
This is why I'm not reading this story. Uh, <laughs> I'm actually not going to read the rest of it because there's so many uh, opportunities for uh, poor pronunciation. So instead of getting beamed into space, Nev, the uh, personal flight capsules will be catapulted in the universe by way of an explosive rocket launch to play take place during a three-day memorial event at Florida's Cape Canaveral, uh, the cradle of the American space program. And the rocket is aptly named the Vulcan Centaur, which is, um, for those of you who are Star Trek fans, will know exactly what a Vulcan is. Other notables making the journey in the art to the afterlife uh, include NASA's first woman astrologist, Marita West, and astronaut uh, Gordon Cooper Jr. Uh, Mazur Tomita, probably pronounced that uh, incorrectly, and two-time all-star Japanese professional baseball player and battlefield hero, bronze star and purple heart recipient, uh, Staff Sergeant John James Cleaver. Um, let's say again, the story does go on, but um, this is, <laughs> I suppose it's quite accurate. My, my, for, for, for yes, someone who... my, my colleague, Brian, who I work with, would be at, would have his head in his hands at the moment because he is a Star Trek specialist oh. uh, of of a considerable, you know, many, many years. So, uh, yeah, he'd be able to get all of this, and, and I'd get very little of it, I have to say. I think it's, it's nice, though, when you think, you know, because yes. Star Trek was a massively popular series and still mm. is a very popular series. You know, I'm currently watching the latest iteration uh, over on, on uh, one of the various streaming channels. And, you know, for the, for these cast members who portrayed these characters who are based in space for, for most of their lives to be, you know, have the ashes scattered in space is quite, you know, quite thoughtful, I think. It's very nice. Yeah. But, um, yes, what an interesting story to end on. Thanks for uh, <laughs> popping that one in there, Nick. Appreciate that. Uh, I think that was yours, actually. Was that, was that my one? Yeah. You're the Trekkie around here. Well, I am the Trekkie around Such here. Such a sado, honestly. <sighs> oh, yeah, I forget, because Matt Smith is a fan of Star Snores. I mean, Wars. Danger, Will Robinson. Oh, no, that's something else. Uh, <laughs> so that is the commercial news segment finished for this week. Thanks to uh, Nick for popping the stories together this week. Uh, next up, it's uh, the next of the interviews that I took over at the City of oh. Norwich uh, Wings and Wheels <clears throat> Museum. Now, you remember that uh, I visited there a few weeks ago for their uh, Wings and Wheels event, which was absolutely great. The weather was fantastic for the entire weekend. It was run over a Saturday and Sunday. Now, I did uh, see a message that uh, Carl Lake from Norwich Airport had put on uh, the group um, Facebook page last week, and he did say on there that apparently it was the highest number of visitors that they'd had for one of their Wings and Wheels events um, that we over that weekend, which is great news for the guys there because the museum does rely quite heavily on, obviously, the entrance fees, which are very little for the museum. Um, but it's safe to say if you are, as we said in the show previously, if you're in the Norwich area here in the city of Norwich, it is literally next door to Norwich Airport. So you can see um, Embraer's and various... Uh, um, helicopters taking off to the North Sea oil rigs from there as well while you're visiting the museum. But it's well worth a visit if you're there. Get yourselves over to the City of Norwich Aviation Museum. And while I was there on the uh, Saturday, I got a chance to talk with Gary and uh, we were on board. We've got the uh, lovely opportunity to go on board the Nimrod there at Norwich, which is literally 
95% all intact, including the engines, which are still uh, on the aircraft. And I got a chance to go on board and have a chat, a very interesting chat uh, with Gary about the aircraft and also his classic car. So I've been lucky enough to uh, to get on board the Nimrod here, and I'm with Gary. Gary, welcome to the show. Hi there. So Gary, tell us a bit about uh, your your career. Okay, yeah. So um, I joined the RAF in 1987 as an electronics radar technician. Um, but um, after about three years, uh, most of those radars were being changed over into a more modern kit, and um, I decided I'd wanted to have another opportunity um, within the RAF and has always wanted to fly. So um, I applied for M and Aircrew um, as an air engineer. Um, but when I went through selection, uh, there was a, a number of vacancies available for the AEOP, um, Air Electronics Operator. And, um, and so I, I thought I'd give that a go. Um, luckily got selected and, um, and transferred over into the M and Aircrew world on Nimrods. So uh, that was around about uh, 1990, and uh, went down to the OCU, uh, sorry, up to the OCU in um, Kinloss, and did six months. Well, sorry, I did 18 months of ground training at Finningley, and then went on to the OCU at Kinloss, um, and did six months there. Um, posted on to uh, 201 Squadron, and um, and then did just under seven years on the squadron. Um, I was an acoustics operator. So uh, tracking submarines uh, using the, the kit down the, down the front. Um, and there was a team of three. And um, I worked up to, and in my last sort of 18 months, I was the lead wet, as they called them. Uh, and that was where um, I would coordinate the two operators um, tracking submarines. Quite, quite an in-depth job. Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, the training, um, I'd say 18 months, uh, and um, a year of that was training to be an acoustics operator. So uh, it went it really into depth, uh, and we had to uh, retain uh, an awful lot of information in our heads on, on the acoustic signatures of the different submarines, because it was all secret level. Um, it was, we did carry around the books with the detail, but um, you didn't really have time to go through your book to try and work out what submarine you were tracking. You needed to know it immediately and know what to look for in what was an extremely noisy screen, and you need to look, try and pick out little dots. On, on that screen to tell you that there's a submarine there. So a bit about the aircraft we're sitting on, because obviously you've got a kind of attachment to this aircraft, haven't you? Yes, yeah, so this one, um, I checked through my logbook when I first joined the museum, and, and I only flew on about two or three times, but um, it was one of these ones, I think it was a bit of a hangar queen, I don't think it flew very much, and that's why it's so pristine <laughs> compared to, to many of the other ones. Um, they're very lucky to get one, which is all complete with all of the uh, electronics and everything in it. Um, but yeah, so um, I checked them and I'd say did a, a number of um, ops uh, flights on them, around about eight hours. Um, and in total, I did about 2,500 hours on the seven years that I was on the squadron. Comfort-wise, obviously you, you're doing operations in this aircraft. I mean, it's roomy, it's mm. definitely roomy. But what was it like being on board this aircraft you know, for, for long periods of time? Yeah, um, it, it was okay. It was um, they were renowned for being quite smelly, with having a, a number of hydraulic systems, um, and and they were a little bit leaky at times. So there was that, that very strong smell of hydraulic, uh, which always made you feel a little bit sick. Certainly myself, I was never was sick. Um, we'd often have visitors on board, and um, 
some of the maneuvers we had to um, to do when we took off to calibrate the aircraft um, that used to wipe people out um, because the maneuvering and the smell uh, and it was very hot and and so uh, yeah it was, it was quite quite uncomfortable when it was only 13 people on the aircraft when it was just the crew um, it's fairly good you can maneuver around very easily if we were uh, going uh, detachments and we were taking all our ground crew with us you'd have up to 26 people on board um, and with all your sonar boys and, and all of your kit um, as well so that would get very cramped and very noisy um, yeah so uh, very uncomfortable in those days but you've got a galley on board I mean we're, we're just looking sitting across here from the galley so you had the option for cooked meals well, yeah, absolutely and um, you see the little oven there was no microwaves or anything like that it was just convection heater um, and it was just the meals were in the foil foil um, containers with a paper just like the old Chinese type ones um, it took about an hour to cook something and the problem is you can only get eight into the oven so a crew of 13 it was um, always had to have two shifts for doing the food um, um, but when we did search and rescue we'd have our own packs so as soon as you took off you could raid those packs and, and make your own in the saucepans and, and a whole load of food and, and uh, ate very well I mean, we did anyway. We ate very well. And coming back from detachments, we would go to the local supermarkets and buy a whole load of produce to, to cook. And we'd just spend the whole, whole uh, flight back cooking for 26 people. So in your career, did you get a chance to uh, fly any other um, Royal Air Force aircraft, like, like the Nimrod? Um, no, no. Um, we trained on the Domini, so like HS-125. Um, so we did um, front seat, um, right hand seat and HF comms in the back. Um, but no, I mean obviously I flew as a passenger on Hercules, um, on Chinooks and that sort of thing. Um, unfortunately I, I, I then transferred and got a commission and went into logistics and I was at RF Coltishall. Uh, and I'd, every time I got lined up to go on a Jaguar there would either be a, a problem with it or the weather wasn't right and so I missed out. Uh, and the same, we did a deployment to Bulgaria, the first one, and uh, I was lined up to do a, a flight in a Frogfoot, and um, and again they, they'd run out, of, effectively run out of fuel on the detachment, so they were unable to go fly on that last day, so I missed out again. So I was a little bit unfortunate on that front, but um, yeah, um, E3s, I've been on E3 as well. Um, yeah, and so much more room. You know, amazing difference. You, know, you go from this tiny airplane into a, a you know a E3, uh, so much more space. So your career then, you obviously it, you enjoyed your service within the uh, with the Royal Air Force. Absolutely yes, yeah, I did 20 years, really enjoyed it, um, and and really stayed around after I left in in 2007. Stayed uh, and I now work for um, uh, MOD. Um, so yeah, yeah, stayed around defence and, and aircraft the whole time. For the, for the younger listeners who watch the show, I mean, what kind of advice would you give to them to want to go? Obviously, we interview pilots on the show a lot within the Royal Air Force, but there are other jobs within the Royal Air Force, such as what you did here. Any advice for younger viewers who may want to not necessarily fly, but want to get into something like the similar position that you had? Yeah, I mean, the RF gave me an op a massive opportunity. Um, I was a salesperson in um, John Lewis before I joined. Um, I didn't have particularly good qualifications, um, and you know, uh, but when I joined the RAF, they they gave me a purpose um, and an ability to say right. Well, actually, if you go away and study and do evening classes, you can fly. 
or you could go and do whatever you want to do, get commissioned and, and go on and do um, some really good um, roles. Uh, and even the roles that are available, you know, the technical ones, technical ones, great opportunities. Um, and what the RF taught, it taught me to learn more um, and be able to pass exams and, and then develop further. And, and as I say, I then went through, um, was able to fly, um, did that for, for 10 years in total with the training and then got commissioned and then was a, a logistics officer um, deployed around the world uh, and those opportunities you know when I left school didn't think I was going to have anything like that um, so it, it's a fantastic opportunity to develop yourself further uh, and the world's your oyster in terms of roles. So looking forward to the future any uh, plans at all for uh, flying or anything? Um, no no um, uh, I w as I work on a, a big complex um, defence project at the moment. Um, I'm, I'm 10 years from retirement, so um, so yeah, I think um, days, days are quiet now. I've got my car here I'm displaying uh, as well, which I've just finished, um, though it still needs work doing to it. So um, yeah, so trying to wind down a little bit, but um, it doesn't seem to be with my career. It's still very, very busy. One last question um, before we wrap up, because we've got some people now coming on board. I'm sure they want to chat to you as well. Um, Given a chance to nip across the NDR here into, into Norwich and fly any aircraft that you wanted to, be it commercial, military, GA, retired or still flying, what would you love to go and jump over now and have a, have a fly in? Ooh, uh, difficult question. Um, I've just come off the F-35 programme um, and that aircraft does look superb. So uh, I think it would have to be the F-35, yeah. F-35. Not one we get very often, so it's, it's good to hear different. Yeah, yeah, no, as uh, I just just finished, um, I was at Marham for two years working on that programme, and um, it's a very impressive aircraft. Noisy as well. Yes. Being very, up close to, yeah, I've, I, I have been. Yeah, 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 yeah. no, they, they are very loud, but um, being able to, their short takeoff landing and, and that side of it would be quite an experience, I think. Any chance you might get a go in one at some point um well i didn't when i was working there and i know we're not working there so probably even less likely now yeah, but um yeah you never know but um any any sort of flying would be great yeah so if anyone's watching the show who does have access to an f-35 <laughs> but no it's been great to speak to you no uh, really good to speak to you and uh, we're going to get a, a few shots of the, that lovely vehicle you've got as well just just for the benefit what what is the car you've got outside here it's a jensen 541s so um, quite rare, there's not many around. Everyone knows the Jensen Interceptor. Um, this is a forerunner to the Interceptor. Um, some similar lines, but um, yeah, um, only 112 built. So it's, uh, yeah, it's taken me 15 years of um, working on. So uh, yeah, it's surprised you had time. <laughs> well, yeah, it's not the only project I've been doing other cars as well in between. That's why it's taken so long. But uh, yeah, quite, quite a hefty project that one. Well, it's been lovely to speak to you. Thanks for coming on the show, and I'm sure everyone who watches will be uh, very much interested in what you've had to say, and also uh, with the aircraft that you actually served on. So thanks for that, and uh, have a great rest of the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I love that that's the aircraft he was serving on. That's the bit that is just so awesome uh, about that. I mean, and how cool is that for him to then be, be a volunteer at... Uh, at the museum i just i just think that's utterly brilliant actually he he was um he'd moved to norwich back to norwich i think he said he'd moved back to norwich and he saw that the museum when he was driving along uh, the ndr he saw that the museum had got this nimrod on you know on site he went and had a look 
and obviously he got his obviously his logbook out that he used to keep from when he was serving and saw that he'd actually flown and done some some time on this particular aircraft and obviously now he's a um, a full-blown volunteer of the of the museum mm. but it was it was really nice to speak to someone he, you know not only <clears throat> who wasn't a pilot on board but was one of the operators who used to operate the um the submarine detection equipment on board but Full of knowledge, got tons of knowledge on the aircraft, loved his job, loved his career within the Royal Air Force. It was great to talk to Gary uh, on there. It was really, really, really good. And also the fact that his his own personal vintage car was parked right next to the aircraft as well, which was, was quite cool as well, the Jensen. So it was great to see that. But, um, yeah, yeah, it was nice to chat to uh, chat to Gary. Now, I think, Nev, we've got um, one more, haven't we? I think you've, we've got uh, to come from Yes, Norwich. yeah. We have, yep. We have, yeah. I'll uh, we'll be putting that one out hopefully, hopefully, um, either next week or the week, probably the week after, I think, because next week we're doing a special show. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, we've got one more to come from Norwich, and that's another very interesting uh, interview as well that we've got coming up from there, which I took with a guy who flies a T six Texan. Um, so that, that's really interesting indeed. But uh, yeah, as I said, well worth a visit. It would be uh, great to get uh, a little meet up there at some point in the not too distant future at Norwich. It'd be good to um, to get some bodies there. And, the only uh, it's an amazing museum. It is absolutely fantastic. The only problem is Carlos is it is a very very long way from everyone apart from <laughs> you and me. Uh, <laughs> that, that is the that is the blot, well, isn't it? I mean, is close by, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, and I, yes, true, that's about it, really. true, yeah, yeah, and Carl, obviously, who was already Carl, there. Yeah. Um, uh, he probably wouldn't want to attend an event, you know, at his own museum that he's involved in. But anyway, um, yes, I mean, I'm desperate for everybody to come and visit the Flixton one. But again, it's that's even worse in terms of trying. To and, and again, it's it's a fantastic museum at Flixton. It is. It's an incredible with a museum. massive amount of static yeah, aircraft. Yeah, yeah. And the best thing is, it's free to get in. Mm. Doesn't yeah. cost you a penny. I know. The only problem is you've got to travel probably. 400,000 miles. miles yes absolutely <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Oh, especially nick because obviously nick lives you know yes in, in, in god's country nice god's country can. god's country but god's oh, country, i think yeah. As, as yeah getting to your part of the world it's uh, as the saying goes it's it's not quite the end of the world but you can see it from there y- yes absolutely it's called lowestoft yeah yeah <laughs> So, moving on to the next part of the show, it's Nev's favourite part. He's been sending us countless messages via our group chat to tell us to move on to get to the the military segment this week. (laughs) So, especially for Nev, uh, if all the team are ready, there's some... some, Nev, honestly. Let's go. uh, let's, Let's do our military segment of the show and we're missing our monday this week i will just point that out before we go on that we are missing our military expert on the show fingers crossed hopefully our monday will be back soon fingers crossed So, military news for this week comes to us. The first story 
comes to us from uh, Reuters.com. And a coalition of 11 nations will start training Ukrainian pilots to fly F-16 fighter jets in August this year in Denmark. Uh, training centre is going to be set up in Romania, an official said on Tuesday this week, on the sidelines of a NATO summit in Lithuania. So, NATO members Denmark Netherlands have been leading international efforts to train pilots as well as support staff and maintain aircraft and ultimately enable the supply of F-16s to the Ukraine for its war efforts uh, in, in, against uh, Russia. So far, no countries have committed to sending F-16s to Ukraine, though Poland and Slovakia have supplied 27 MiG-29s uh, to supplement Ukraine's fleet of combat aircraft. Kiev, which has launched a counteroffensive against Russian forces, has repeatedly called for Western countries to supply aircraft and train its pilots to fly them to successfully counter Moscow's aerial dominance. And uh, there's actually a, <coughs> a company not far from us here who've got an F-16 uh, sim, like a, a sim trainer, which is, I'll, I'll be quite intrigued as obviously flying a commercial airliner sim here at home. I'd love to have a go in the, in the sim with an F-16. It's one of those very popular military aircraft that everyone knows about. And um, I think I'd, li I'd like to have a go just to see what it's all about, flying an F-16. But Matt, you have got the next military story for the show this week, all about refueling. Indeed. Uh, so it's thedrive.com is the site to which it comes from. And the headline, private aerial refuelling tanker has gassed up, on, uh, gassed up an Air Force plane for the very first time. A doorway to the Air Force making use of contractor-operated tankers to reduce the strain on its own fleets may finally be cracked open. A privately owned KC-135R tanker refuelled US Air Force aircraft for the first time in a recent exercise. For years now, the service has been exploring the idea of using contractor-operated tankers for refuelling and other non-combat missions to help ease the growing pressure on its organic tanker fleets. Uh, private aerospace firm Metria uh, announced the milestone in a press release which says that the company's KC-135Rs provided aerial refuelling support during exercise Resolute Hunter 23-2 for the Air Force. Resolute Hunter is a biannual US Navy-led exercise and is the Department of Defense's only dedicated battle management, command and control, intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance exercise, according to that service. Uh, the uh, Air Force and foreign air arms routinely participate in the event which is staged out of naval air station Fallon in Nevada. From June 23rd through to June 29, Metria uh, Strategic Motability provided four aerial refuelling support missions for RC-135s and E-3 aircraft according to the release from Metria. The total included 13 boom contacts and nearly £90,000 of fuel offloaded providing both aerial refuelling training for the RC-135 and the E-3 crews. The specific mention of boom contacts is important. Metria is one of just two private companies that even own tankers of any kind configured with booms. The method by which the majority of the Air Force aircraft are refuelled in flight. The other is Omega... 
uh, Omega Air refueling, which still primarily uses tankers with probe and drogue refueling systems. Uh, uh, probe and drogue is the aerial refueling method for the US Navy and Marine Corps, as well as many US allies and partners abroad. Previously known as Meta Aerospace, oh my goodness, I hope it's got nothing to do with the other Meta, uh, Metria acquired four retired ex Republic of Singapore Air Force KC 135Rs back in 2020. When those those aircraft were purchased they were painted overall grey a very stimulating colour as seen earlier in the story now now they wear one of at least two multi-tone schemes that are broadly reminiscent of one of the air force uh, used on its tankers for a time in the 1980s and 1990s that air force scheme had uh, some general similarities uh, to the shading of orca whales leading it to be nicknamed the shamu there you go. You look on our website, Matt, the Metria website. Okay. It's uh, it's quite interesting, actually. If if you get a chance to go on their website, it's, it's really interesting. It's actually a decent yeah. website. Ne with Nev's having a look at it as we speak, obviously. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just starting right now. Yeah. It's got yeah. it bookmarked, I think. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, they've got four, um, according to their, their website, they've got four of those KC-135 uh, refueling tankers in their fleet. Mm. Um, which I'm guessing are probably all ex ex Air Force ones, but um, yeah. yeah, it's quite an interesting website. There's loads of info on there actually. It's got a bit of a geeky website. There's lots to see on there, but it's on Met Met Metria dot Aero. It's well worth a look if you get a chance. Uh, Nick, you've got the uh, last one and India for this one. Yeah, well, assuming that Nev doesn't want to do it, of course, I'll, uh, I'll take this last one. Uh, so yeah, this is from uh, thedrive.com. Nev's very busy. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, the French-made Rafale M from Dassault Aviation is set to be in the Indian Navy's next-generation carrier fighter. After New Delhi gave the initial go-ahead to purchase 26 of the jets, and I've got to say at this point, it's a really cool-looking thing. It kind of reminds me of a little um, sort of small, lightweight version of a tornado. Um, the navalized Rafale M, the land-based uh, version, is already flown by the Indian Air Force, um, and it fought off competition from Boeing's FA-18 Super Hornet, and is planned to be acquired as part of a major French arms package that will also include three uh, Scorpion-class diesel-electric attack submarines. Oh, we don't get those on the, on the show very often, do we? Uh, it's announced today that the Indian Ministry of Defence's Defence Acquisition Council, which is in charge of procurement, had given the initial approval for the purchase of the Rafale M's and three submarines. That announcement came just ahead of a planned visit to France by Indian Prime Minister. Uh, uh, by the Indian Prime Minister, let's go with that. Um, more specifically, the French arms deal will include four two-seat Rafales which will be used for training. Presently, there is no two-seat version of the navalized Rafale M, so it's not clear if these four aircraft will be a new India-specific model or whether they will be the land-based two-seaters as used by the Indian Air Force and others. Not only has the Rafale already in service with the Indian Air Force in its land-based configuration, 
but it's also racked up an impressive list of export successes, including a huge order also for the land-based uh, version from the United Arab Emirates. Uh, on the other hand, Boeing will likely be disappointed not to build on its previous sales to India of other high-end defense technology, including the Apache attack helicopters and the uh, P-8 maritime patrol aircraft. That said, any momentum behind the Super Hornet offer seems to have been lost some weeks ago, while the US reportedly having lapsed at the end of June, leaving the Rafale as the only contender. But yeah, that's a, that's a cool-looking aircraft. I've actually not heard of that before. Have any of you guys come across that one before? No, but I suspect uh, Jonathan Warner has. Yes, I imagine. <laughs> Who's I mean, in the chat room? I mean, I mean, it's grey and it's got lots of blowy-uppy things on the yeah, bottom. Yeah, but look, it's I mean, cool. It's... Look at it. Is it? <laughs> Are you doing? Actually, um, Jonathan Warner was just saying uh, back in the chat room that apparently um, one of those uh, Metria 135 tankers was at Riyadh last week, last weekend hmm. at the air show. So, yeah. And on that note, actually, I will um, hopefully, I was due to, um, due to, to, to catch Jonathan Warner today for a little chat to a bit of a debrief on React because if there's anyone to ask about how mm. React was this year, it was going to be Jonathan Warner, um, as he was there like six years before the show started last weekend. <laughs> um, so hopefully next week, um, he's assured me that we'll be uh, catching up with, uh, or I'll be catching up with Jonathan next week for a little sit down and chat about uh, how React was this year, because uh, obviously they they didn't have the best weather guys for the show this year no unfortunately no indeed yeah, it was a bit bit of a shame wasn't it it's bit of like a shame feel, yeah mm. feel very sorry for all the the people that that you know spend mm. a lot of time and i think the turnout money. was still good though i don't think it's sort of i don't think you know i don't i don't think people not didn't no, not, you know actually didn't I, I read some of the comments um i know that the the react facebook page the official react mm. facebook page put a question and answer thing on their on their page that was the brave <laughs> yeah it was yeah uh, but they put a question and answer thing on their page the beginning of this week asking for people's feedback on what they thought about the show mm. and i have to say i was expecting there to be a lot of negative feedback but there was actually pretty much mostly all positive feedback. The only thing that people um, commented and, and uh, moaned about at React this year was uh, the toilets. Oh, okay. Bit, Apparently, bit, they were a bit. Well, they shouldn't the be drinking from them. <laughs> true. True. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, moving swiftly on. Uh, as you know, each week on the show, uh, we like to give away a book we like to do giveaways on the show because we uh, obviously have a food books that are very kindly sent to us from grub street publishing so thanks to the guys over at grub street for sending us uh, uh, the books that we love to give away on the show aviation books and nev has uh, you're in charge of this what, what's going on nev Oh, yeah, well, we're all over the shop this time because uh, we've got some controversy uh, oh. in this in last week's competition. Uh, let me just tell you the story. So the question was, where and when did the first Royal International Air Tattoo take place? So I put in the, the answer and all the rest of it, but it turns out that there could be uh, more than one answer, depending on how you phrase the question. So luckily, of course, uh, Jonathan Warner was on hand, 
to assist us and he says here comes the nerdiest answer you'll get for this week's competition <laughs> the international air tattoo iat began its life in 1971 held at north Weald airfield but only for the first two years after rapidly outgrowing it it then moved to raf green and common where it stayed until 1985 growing bigger and bigger year after year. With the looming closure of Greenham Common, Fairford became its forever home, having been hosted there ever since, uh, apart from 2000 and 2001, when Fairford had a massive upgrade to its runways and taxiways. Uh, two, uh, those two were held at RAF Cottesmore. Uh, in 1996, however, the IAT became RIAT, the Royal International Air Tattoo, after gaining royal status during its Silver Jubilee year. Uh, fun footnote here, during the Saturday show this year, he met one of the creators of the International Air Tattoo and Royal, Interna uh, royal International Air Tattoo, Tim Prince. Uh, he came into the Friat enclosure, which is friends of the Royal International Air Tattoo, and was stood a few metres from him. He walked over to him, shook his hand and said, thank you for all that you and the late Paul Bowen created. He simply said, this is the power of volunteers. And he's dead right. What an incredible moment that mm. uh, was for me, Jonathan says. I remember going to the shows in the early 90s as a kid and never missed one. I used to wait all year for that one day to come around again. From 2004, when I left school, I started doing all six days of the show and I've been doing that ever since. Sorry to bore you all, but I'm sat at work waiting for a train, so I thought I would use the time. <laughs> so, what a great answer. Thank you, Jonathan. So, what I have done, because there's, there's two answers here, really. Um, if, if it was the International Air Tattoo, it's 1971 at North Weald. Uh, but if it's the Royal International Tattoo, uh, Air Tattoo, it's 1996. So, what I've done, we did have uh, both answers, actually. So, what I've done, I have put all of those answers for both uh, years, whether it was 1971 or 1996, into the... London Biggin Hill Airport hat. So I shall now draw out a drum roll. A, uh, a ticket. And let's see who the winner is this week. Uh, it is Gordon. Me? No, sorry, it's not. It's Gordon McKechnie. M uh, sorry, Mc McGeeky. Sorry, I beg your pardon. Gordon McGeeky. So, Gordon, I shall send you. A email shortly, and your prize is the Fleet Air Arm Boys. Uh, it's volume four by Steve Bond, a lifetime of reminiscences from the flight deck. A little bit of damage on the top left hand corner there. I'm sorry, that's how it came in from the post, so I do, do apologize. So, well done, Gordon. I'll get that off to you. You send me your address. And um, we have a competition for this week as well. Ooh. This will be the last of our Grub Street books. We've, we've run out now. Um, this one is called Vampire Boys by Charlotte Bailey. True tales from operators of the RAF's first single-engine jet. Oh, nice. Great read. I've read a little bit of it um, mm. the other day, actually. And this week's question is, which is longer, the Boeing 747's wingspan or the distance of the Wright brothers' first flight? I should repeat the question. Which is longer, the Boeing 747's wingspan or the distance of the Wright brothers' first flight? Ooh. Please send your answers to podcast at plaintalkinguk.com 
and uh, not next week but the week after we shall draw out a winner again and you can stand the chance of winning the vampire boys book that's quite an interesting question i'm not going to ask you for the what the actual stats were but whether it was the boeing 747's wingspan or the distance of the wright brothers first flight which was the longer distance interesting get your answers in via email uh, don't forget that email address podcast at plain talking uk.com now before we uh, move on to uh, the last part of the show which is obviously our social medias and we've got a few minutes to spare we'll just do a quick round robin because next week well next week hopefully fingers crossed mr bounds will be traveling on an aircraft Yes, I've done that for a while, so I've just got to familiar myself, familiarise myself with how to do it. Uh, off to Edinburgh on Monday, uh, doing a bit of uh, work up there. Also going to Aberdeen and Glasgow, and I should be flying black back from Glasgow on when? Uh, sorry, no, Thursday afternoon. So I'm up there for three and a half days next week. So uh, that'll be a bit of fun. So looking forward to doing that. Well, looking forward to uh, hearing the uh, report back, Nev, about uh, BA's service and obviously with the airport as well because, uh, you know, you, you have had a few interesting experiences with previous uh, airports. Well, if if I'm on a flight, something's going to happen, isn't it? <laughs> you, you know that. So I know. Nick, what's going on with you uh, next week? Any, any exciting? Uh, I decided I'm going to undertake a little DIY project, so I'm going to try and build a um a, a workbench for the garage so, oh oh say we'll see how that goes my diy skills are not <laughs> i should probably shouldn't admit to as i'm a engineer by trade uh good lovely <laughs> <laughs> well played uh, <laughs> matt what's going on in the in the world uh, of uh, smith it appears that i'm going to be having a crash course in how to fit alternators uh, this weekend so uh, youtube is your friend yeah apparently so so we should be googling the heck out of that basically <laughs> yeah if we've, if we've got any mechanic vehicle mechanics watching or listening to the show just yeah. uh help matt <laughs> yeah podcast new, that. new new one should be here wednesdays oh. <laughs> so if anyone's about yeah never mind but uh, and I shall uh, next week. What are we doing next week? I shall be um, in in my new job. Well, my well, my temporary new job next mm. week again, uh, working uh, working for our for our very illustrious station manager of mm. this particular Indeed. radio station here, which is proving to be a very nice welcome change, change from what you've I been doing. I will say, I I knew you, I knew you would sort of. You know, it's right up your street, basically, what you're doing. Yeah, yeah very much <laughs> yeah, so. Yeah. Although I was, I was sent pictures of, of the immediate pimping of the sound system that Carlos did the <laughs> nanosecond he got there. <laughs> the picture simply said, can you tell Carlos has been here? And I went, yes, yes, uh, I can. <laughs> I, was I was disappointed with the audio setup yes, 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 in, yes. In, the, in, the, uh, in the place. Has there. to be and put thought, right immediately. Yes, has absolutely. to be put right. So I, To I be just... fair, he's, badgering, he's been badgering me for months to actually do something <laughs> about it. So you've, you've saved me a huge job. But anyway, uh, yes, very good. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, so next week, unfortunately, guys, uh, we do have a programme for you, but it is a pre-recorded special show. And that is because Carlos is putting together a little something special perhaps you'd like to tell everybody what they can look forward to next week carlos yeah so uh this coming sunday i'll be getting together with a couple of fellow 
sim users home sim users and we're going to be doing a special show all about uh, sims the microsoft flight sim 2020 and also at the x-plane 11 and the new x-plane 12 as well so we're going to be getting together on sunday to chat about that we're going to put the show together we're going to chat about uh, everything to do with the software the hardware and everything that goes together with making a home sim fingers crossed hopefully as well armando is going to be joining me for that uh, particular recording as well because armando as uh, some of you may know also is a home sim user as well he uses it's, um, it's safe to say armando uses his sim incredibly properly um for his uh, training but um we have a place left uh, on the uh, on the on the show. So if you are an avid home simmer and you have uh, the sort of hardware and software uh, use, use or use of software and hardware at home, and you fancy joining me on Sunday at midday, we're going to record start recording at midday on Sunday. Uh, just pop me an email. Uh, carlos at plaintalkinguk.com obviously for those of you listening to the audio podcast this probably would be a bit too late a little late but, yeah uh, it's published on sunday although we do yes actually while we while we yes yeah, sorry carlos carry on yeah it's uh, it's going to be um, on this coming sunday at midday but uh, if you are an avid home sim user mm -hmm. and like i said you do have uh, some hardware and software that you use on the sims and want to join us for the discussion now uh, we are going to have a deep delve into the good and bad points that uh, are affecting the various uh, platforms at the minute on offer. So mm. that should be hopefully coming next week on the show. Indeed. And uh, also, while we're talking about those who are downloading the show via the podcast platforms, uh, we are aware of a bit of a problem um, yes. with our... What's going on uh, there, Matt? Well, we're not really sure. That's the problem. We've got a support ticket in with Libsyn, who is the company who uh, post our podcast for us basically um i am pr i promise you doing it on a sunday but for some reason uh i think it was nev actually i think it was you that let me know this week that uh, it didn't appear that it would uh, it had gone um so yeah we do have a support ticket in in there we, we we think at the moment uh it's something to do with the um show note element to it which is what's force failing uh, to uh, to post so we are still trying to get to the bottom of that so uh, we are we are trying to get it sorted basically so apologies that the audio version is not uh, arriving as readily as it should do uh, usually around about sort of Sunday lunchtime but we are aware of it and we are trying to get to the bottom of what the hic hiccup is essentially if I remove the show notes and then repost it it seems to work every single time so we, we think that that may you know the file is the same um, so yeah not quite sure what's going on but we're trying to get to the bottom of it basically now for those of you who may not know just forgotten or you know just wondering nev where can our marvelous listeners find out more about us and uh, join us on the show you'd think they know by now wouldn't you but mm. uh, yes of course it's uh, facebook twitter or instagram uh, just search your social medias for plain talking uk and threads uh, by what's... the way <laughs> As well, oh, and threads we, as we well, are on yes. threads as well. We're very, we're very on it here. Yeah, <gasps> another new platform. <laughs> I, know, got to I know. Download an app. And, oh, <laughs> man. Uh, um, just, uh, I was looking for a message the other day from someone very important, um, and I couldn't work out whether they sent it to me on Facebook, Twitter, Insta, uh, <laughs> instant messenger, uh, text messages, or whatever it was. Pigeon. Oh, it's awful. Anyway, I eventually found it after about 
45 minutes of looking. Anyway, that's just me. <laughs> um, WhatsApp number for the show is plus 44-757-224-9166. You can email the show, podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. And the website is www.plaintalkinguk.com. Uh, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. You'll get notifications when we go live. And as so many people have done, you can take part in the chat room as well. And uh, you can also become a patron of the show, of course, don't forget. Have a look on the website. Uh, it'll tell you how to do that, uh, either patron or PayPal member, I think I'm right in saying. So uh, Correct, yes. We can do that. And uh, thank you very much indeed for all of your contributions, because that really does help us keep the show on the road with the media uh, hosting costs and server costs and all, and all the rest of it. So that's, uh, that's it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you to one and all. Thanks to everyone for joining us this evening. I forgot to mention at the top of the show, but we did have got quite a few members in the chat room tonight. We're just going to quickly, uh, before we finish, mention Richard Adams, Dirk S, our main man, Micah, Hobby Time, Masha is in there. Also, Oscar was also in there. Dirk S, Sturman was also in there. Looking forward to Sturman's wedding next month, very much indeed. Uh, we have also we also had uh, Bill was also in there as well. Uh, Pip was in there playing safety. And uh, Aaron P, hello to you as well. And just make sure. And Milo was also in there as well this evening. Uh, nice to see you back in there. Shorty, Crosgove. Yeah, I did mention. I did mention. You, Oscar. Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah, I did mention. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Shorty was in there as well. Good to see you in there. Richard Adams was also. Jonathan Warner, as we all know, was also in there. Looking forward to catching up with Jonathan next week to have a chat about React. Hobby Time was also in there as well. And um, just make sure I don't miss anyone. Uh, Captain Ridiculous Wits as well also <laughs> uh, popped his head in there the chat room as well. So thanks, everyone, for joining us this evening on the show. Don't forget, next week we won't be live, but we will still have a very special uh, Flight Sim show to bring you next week. Uh, and we'll be back live again on... Oh, I need to remember the dates now. It'll be Friday the 4th of August. Oh, for goodness sake. How what? is it almost August? I know. It, it, we're halfway through the year already. I know. I know. But thanks, everyone joining us tonight great to see you all in there thanks to nick uh, for putting all the stories together for us this evening as well thanks to nev for joining us as well from his home studios there. and obviously thanks for matt as well for uh, rushing into the ptuk master suite studios this evening and uh, getting everything ready even though his car is feeling slightly poorly right now but uh, we'll be New back. Parts are on the way. We'll be back <laughs> with that special show next Friday at seven o'clock here on YouTube. So take care, everyone. Have a great weekend, whatever you're up to. And uh, from me, Carlos, here in the home studio, and from Nev in his home studio, from Nick in his home studio, and from Matt in the PTUK Master Suite Studios. Take care, and we'll see you again very soon. Bye, everyone. Say goodbye. Bye. 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 Bye.